0: Hello and welcome to the program. I'm Kate Elliott. Today on Freedom of Species, we will be broadcasting an interview that I conducted earlier in the week with Anita Krintz. Anita is the founder of Toronto Pig Save, a grassroots-based animal rights and vegan activist group in Canada. The group began by committing to holding a minimum of three peaceful vigils per week, bearing witness to pigs in transport trucks on their way to the local slaughterhouse. From these humble beginnings, Toronto Pig Save has inspired animal save groups all around the world, whether it be sheep save, pig save, cow save, chicken save, and now I believe in Melbourne there's even talk of a fish save group starting up. In fact, the exponential growth of these groups is now collectively known as the save movement. And there's likely to be one, if not a number of them, in a town near you. You can find this out by visiting the savemovement.org website. And if there isn't one, you can start one up. Toronto Pig Save has information on their website on how to go about this. But first, um, before you go off and do that, it's best to listen to the program because Anita discusses the crucial philosophies that make this movement so successful. We also discuss the high-profile court case, dubbed the pig trial, that Anita has been involved in and that has gained global media attention. Finally, towards the end of the interview, we briefly discuss with Anita her move to promote veganism as an essential response to mitigating climate change with the group Climate Vegan. So that's all coming up in the next hour, along with some Nick Cave tunes from his album Abattoir Blues, and that's probably the closest association. The name of the album is probably the closest association it has with um, today's topic. But who needs an excuse to uh, listen to Nick Cave? So that's coming up. Please stay with us. 3CR Community Radio is dedicated to exploring the issues that affect our future
1: because I think it is something we just need to be talking about.
0: 855 AM. Tune in and listen up. Welcome, Anita, back to Freedom of Species. It's uh, been a few years now. I interviewed you, I think, way back in 2011 or 2012 about Toronto Pig Save. A lot has happened since then but maybe we start just at the back at the beginnings with Toronto Pig Save for people who don't know what the um, save movement is and how it all started.
2: Toronto Pig Save started in 2010 when I adopted a dog Mr Bean and I, we walked on Lakeshore, it's a street in downtown Toronto and we, uh, I, would, I saw trucks carrying pigs to a uh, downtown slaughterhouse. And um, we started to bear witness in July 2011, and we were committed to doing three vigils a week um, as a way to build a movement, uh, get more people involved. So it started small, but then it grew quickly, both in Toronto and abroad.
0: So it seems right from the beginning you had a very clear vision of what was required to draw attention to this issue. I know you've also got a strong academic background in social justice with a PhD in political science. Do you think that was necessary for you to actually be able to um, identify what needed to happen at this stage?
2: I think that um, for a social movement to... Uh, gain a lot of momentum and to have um, a lot of participation. You need to be on the ground regularly. Um, and for, for Toronto Pig Save and the Save Movement, we sort of define success as the number of people attending vigils and the number of vigils that save groups are organizing. So when a new save group starts, we, we always uh, request that they hold regular vigils. Um, you know, whether it's weekly or biweekly or monthly or every six weeks, our, I think the key is to have regular events and to be on the ground. So our vision was that you know, in order to uh, produce a social change movement, you got to be on the ground. You can't just be behind a computer. And one of the most effective ways of um, getting people motivated to help animals is to see for themselves, animals uh, that are going to slaughter there you know you can watch a video you can see a photo and be deeply moved and go vegan as a result of it but i think in order to become a a very committed activist it's very important to see with your own eyes what is happening to animals going to slaughter Um, there's nothing like it and it profoundly changes people so, um, in terms of drawing from the social movement literature, uh, we we drew a lot from community organizing and um, ideas about how to get how to engage the community as a whole, and um, that involves getting people to a, a particular site. So, in our case. When we were engaging in community organizing, we focused on one slaughterhouse, quality meat packers in downtown Toronto. Um, but we were aware that just by holding regular vigils in front of that slaughterhouse and as well as, well as um, at a busy intersection nearby, um, this would put pressure, this would increase awareness. Um, just, just by being there regularly, we knew that that would help um, bring focus to this issue. And so we've used like love based community organizing and also the strategy of bearing witness, which is you know first hand witnessing of injustice. and those have been our two main approaches.
0: I want to pick up on that later on, but just before we do that, can you talk about the early days and because you've been doing it for so long now and you've been holding vigils um, regularly for a period of time? What's the change in attitude from just passers by and people that um, see you there regularly?
2: Yeah, there's so many changes that have resulted. Um, I think it it put it, it has politicized um, the, these transport trucks. Even people within our own community were not aware of the animals being transported in these trucks. They, you know, they'd be on the highway and they wouldn't notice them. Um, but now, as a result of all these safe groups holding vigils and bearing witness to animals and trucks, people are very aware. And so this is extended to the public as well because we, of the regular vigils. Um, and I think it's, the public has seen people caring enough to be there for hours in all weather conditions and, and bearing witness. And um, you know, at the beginning, it was mainly so- social media that was getting the word out broadly, uh, as well as, you know, the, the vigils on the streets. But, um, you know, we have eventually achieved a lot of mass media attention for our cause. And um, I think people understand that um, it's important to um, observe directly what is happening to animals. And, you know, if you're not observing, if you're not there, then, it's, then you're not thinking about it. Um, you, only, you only know the life of other beings if you're observing them. And you only think about them you know if you're you know regularly acting and you know going to vigils, otherwise it's very easy to forget about their existence
0: and that leads on to the idea of bearing witness. I know you draw heavily on the theories of Tolstoy and Gandhi. Um, can you talk about bearing witness and and the importance of it for the individual, but I guess also for society as well
2: um, well. We, we 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 believe that people have a duty to bear witness, and you know I think a lot of people in our society think that it's okay to look away um, from something that is painful and something that is hurtful and causes them pain, and we're trying to change that societal norm so that if there is something wrong, if an animal is suffering. Uh, it is our duty to, to come close and to try to help, and that's basically what Tolstoy said. You know, he said, when, when another creature is suffering, don't succumb to the initial desire to flee from the suffering one, but on the contrary, come closer, as close as you can, and try to help. And the idea, we want to change the societal norm, and, and you know, Gandhi and other social movement leaders have long said that suffering is necessary to produce social change. And people need to leave their comfort zone and you, know, and, and, you know, get out there and do things like bearing witness, even if it causes pain. And it does cause pain. There's no question about it. And, but, but the positive thing is that by absorbing some of the pain that the animals are going through, just by seeing their suffering and, you know, and empathizing deeply, it, 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 it results in people standing up and speaking out louder for animals, um, in, in, in whether they're at home or at work or in the community, um, they, they, people, after they go to vigils, are more likely to speak out and also to organise events to help animals. And that's that's been our experience.
0: Yeah, it seems like leading by example, but also education. I can remember my own experience many, many years ago, describing it to people as though I had been given permission by looking at the actions of others to treat animals how I've always wanted to treat them and to um, advocate on their behalf as I've always felt they needed.
2: Right. I, I, I think that um, people who love animals have to t- take on more of the uh, of, of the suffering on behalf of animals. And um, there's a Tolstoy has been someone, as you said, who has really inspired our movement. And in one of his books called My Religion, he says, um, and I'd like to quote from the book, he says, One who knows the truth must bear witness of the truth to those who do not. We need to bear witness of the truth not in words but in acts. So what he's saying is that if you know the truth, if you know what's happening to animals and how much they're suffering in slaughterhouses, it's it's the people that know the truth that must bear witness to it, because don't expect people who don't you know don't have the same passion about animals and who don't know the truth about how they're suffering at slaughterhouses to go out there and do vigils. So it's really up to us, the people who care the most, to actually go to vigils and suffer and learn more and and then sp- and then share the stories of the animals. And I think um, in terms of strategy that. You know, when we're bearing witness, you know, our, most of the people who join us initially are people who are very passionate about animals. And then, but we use a community organizing approach to then extend it to others. Just by people coming to the vigils, we, we, we then ask them to bring their family members, to bring their friends, and, and that's how our vigils have grown. But the, the reality is the people that first go to the vigils are people who love animals a lot and want to dedicate, you know, more time and are aware of their suffering and are aware of what ha- what's happening in slaughterhouses. But when they when you do vigils, you learn even more about how much they suffer and as a result you suffer more, but it's part of the process of social change.
0: I know some people who'd be listening to this who have attended the vigils held by the Melbourne Save groups or Animal Liberation Victoria vigils at slaughterhouses would relate to um, the pain that you feel when you see the suffering of animals in the slaughter trucks um, outside the slaughter facilities. Where does intervention sit with bearing witness? Um, because I feel part of the pain and the frustration you feel is not being able to intervene and stop um, the the killing of these animals and the suffering that they Experience on the transport trucks on their way to slaughter.
2: That's a really, really important point. Um, intervention is absolutely um, central to to the to fully bearing witness. Um, Tolstoy defined it as you know coming as close as you can to, and and trying to help. And so when often when we do vigils, we're just like partially bearing witness because we're there. We're, we 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 look at the animals. We we. We communicate with them. Um, we touch. We, t- we touch each other. The you know the pigs and the cows come up to us sometimes and uh, nuzzle us. And and then they go off to slaughter. And you know, and sometimes we give them water. And that's a little bit of intervention in terms of, uh, you know, helping them in terms of their thirst. But they still go off to slaughter. Only on a handful of occasions have we rescued animals, and that's when we're fully bearing witness. So intervention is definitely um... Part of bearing witness, and um, you know the question is how much do you bear witness? Like obviously, when Animal Liberation Victoria went to that the slaughterhouse, and uh, you know, and went right on the kill floor, that's a stronger form of bearing witness and intervention. Um, you know, when you when we there many animals that have been rescued at Save Vigils around the world, uh, and that's obviously fully bearing witness. And Tolstoy himself strongly advocated for acting in the right way in the present and doing what's absolutely right and not worrying about consequences. So he was against consequentialism and utilitarian approaches in philosophy, very much about living in the present and doing the right thing. And we all know when we're at a vigil that the right thing for the animal before us is to rescue him or her, and um, so that's fully bearing witness. And that's why some of the vigils are so painful and frustrating, and horrific you know because we we were just partially bearing witness and we see these incredible animals and we know how unjust it is for them to be suffering so and then going and then for them to be sent to the slaughterhouse and prodded you know towards the kill floor and, and and have their throat slit um, so intervention is definitely the ideal that we're all striving for and the way to get there from our perspective is to build a mass-based um, grassroots movement, uh, where more and more people bear witness, and eventually we'll have a critical mass, and you know, change the laws and make it illegal to to execute and to torture and confine animals, just as it is illegal to summarily execute human beings.
0: I think when people hear intervention, they immediately think um, aggression and uh, that it's violent, but I think from my experience of being at vigils with Animal Liberation Victoria, they name it was what it is. So they stand there with um, signs saying stop violence and they like stop signs. So it's very visual, but it's always a peaceful uh, vigil, peaceful demonstration. I think that's also um, an approach that you take with your love based activism. Can you talk about that and the strengths of that type of approach?
2: Yes. Uh, it's very much informed, again, by Tolstoy's ideas. He, he said um, you, 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 you can only fight violence and evil with, with love. I mean, the world be- needs more love. And um, you're not, you can never fight violence with violence, because that only leads to more violence. Um, and um, basically, love is a key aspect of his entire approach. Um, the idea of love thy neighbor... Um, is a sort of a starting point and from there other things flow like the golden rule to treat others as you'd like to be treated you know as, as animal lover, lovers we we should be willing to sacrifice um, you know our own interests and, and and to suffer on the behalf of other animals and um, so love plays a central role and we're also very much influenced by gandhi's love-based community organizing uh, which, again, you know, which is a nonviolent approach. And um, it's one where uh, everyone can participate. So when we hold all-day vigils or regular vigils, we have grandmothers. We have mothers with children. Um, it's a very inclusive approach. It's, it's a very attractive and uh, appealing approach. And basically we're trying to build the kind of world we want to live in. And um, so... I I think that uh, you know it's very clear when 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 Animal Liberation Victoria or Melbourne Pig Save hold a vigil and there's a you know a huge uh, police presence. Uh, it, the police presence is there because of the incredible impact that the vigils are having, and so you see you know an attempt at state repression. And, and in my case, where I was charged for giving water to thirsty pigs, that, again, was an example of the state trying to you know, suppress a, a burgeoning movement, and it backfired. And so I think, you know, at the strong, I think nonviolence is what makes our movement really, really strong, and it's very difficult for the state to suppress us because it's the strongest stance one can take, like it's the just approach and it's a, it's, it's, um, it's a process that's very inclusive and inviting to, to, to others.
0: Yeah, so we'll talk about the pig trial um, a little bit later on, but first, it's love approach, including what would be traditionally, I guess, what would be seen as adversaries. And I've noticed that you've had some um, incredible interactions with um, truck drivers uh, um, going to the slaughterhouse and possibly slaughterhouse employees and the police. And this love-based approach seems to be effective in um, reducing barriers, I guess. So it is inclusive.
2: Yes, I think it's really interesting how when you use a love-based approach, um, you can break down all sorts of divisions. And, and it. You know, when you use a love-based approach, it's not about us and them. It's about all of us, like sharing this planet and trying to create a better and kinder world. And we've had incredible breakthroughs, and sometimes it takes years, sometimes it's immediate um, in terms of uh, being able to achieve the objectives we want to. So you, at Vigils, we want to bear witness to the animals. And for Toronto Pig Save, it took a few years before um, we, it even occurred to us to stop the trucks in order to bear witness. Initially, we didn't have to because there was a traffic island called, which we dubbed Pig Island, in downtown Toronto, where the trucks would stop at a long set of lights. But then the slaughterhouse the went bankrupt, and so we had to go to vigils in Burlington. Uh, it's about 40 minutes outside of Toronto, and there the traffic there was a traffic line. There is a traffic island, but the trucks stopped for a very short period of time. And so, ideally, we to bear witness, you need to stop the trucks, and it took us a year or two to figure that out and to do it successfully and the police actually cooperate with us uh, at all day vigils and it stops trucks for two or three sets of lights. Um, a lot of the truck drivers are cooperative, some of them aren't. Um, at the Cow slaughterhouse in Toronto, it was really frustrating for years. The truck drivers would just run into us, literally, um, and now they stop at both of the slaughterhouses it was just a remarkable transformation it took a while to happen in um, england uh, a number of safe groups formed within the last year and some some of the new safe groups were able to achieve an agreement with the slaughterhouses to stop the trucks for people to bear witness at their very first vigil so um, the organizers would send a letter to the slaughterhouse introducing themselves saying you know just honestly telling them what their objectives were and that they wanted to safely bear witness. And they contacted the police. And, it's, and, you know, initially the response was, oh, you can't do that. But the correspondence continued. And in some cases they had an agreement at the first vigil. Um, there's one slaughterhouse named Tulip. It's owned by a company in Copenhagen, Denmark, and it has a number of slaughterhouses in England. And they had agreements with Manchester Pig Safe, Spalding, Take safe and Bristol um, Animal Safe to stop the trucks. Uh, but recently, um, the, the, Copenh- the K- Copenhagen headquarters said to the slaughterhouses that they could no longer uh, adhere to those agreements. Be- and the reason being that they were so impactful. Like you know, having vigils where people could safely bear witness brought out a lot of people, and um, the social media was just incredible. And so that's something that those groups are dealing with now. But it, it just shows you that what is possible, what might have seemed inconceivable when we first started, you know, trying to pick save um, now is uh, something that's quite common. And sometimes it takes a while, or sometimes it may, might be immediate in terms of um, having an agreement with the Waterhouse to uh, stop the trucks. Um, at our chicken slaughterhouse here. It's called uh, Maple Leaf Poultry in Toronto. Um, the plant manager uh, has arranged an agreement for two years already where every truck stops for five minutes so we can safely bear witness every week. So a lot is possible. In terms of workers, um, we're working with Nadia Schilling uh, from Australia. um living in Australia, but she works for In Defense of Animals on a slaughterhouse worker helpline. So we put posters up Around the slaughterhouses in Toronto and Burlington and uh, other locations around here, and uh, offer help to slaughterhouse workers, such as uh, um, referrals for you know writing CVs or um, help with drug drug abuse and alcoholism, or even reporting animal abuse that they might see at at their site. So yeah, so I think it's a natural evolution of our approach, which has always been. Um, a recognition of worker rights and trying to help workers to get out of a violent industry where, you know, their work is dangerous and meaningless to to getting jobs that are actually helping society and also lead to meaning in their own lives.
1: ¿Se puede
0: tuned to 3CR's animal advocacy program, Freedom of Species, partway through an interview with Toronto Pig Save founder, Anita Kreins, We'll return to the interview where I asked Anita how Toronto Pig Save inspired the Animal Save movement. So Toronto Pig Save started
2: in uh, December 2010 and then we started holding regular vigils in July 2011, so three vigils a week. And then shortly after that, in the autumn Burlington Pig safe started. And then the following year, a few new safe started, including Melbourne Pig safe, with your help. <laughs> it was quite uh, an interesting story. We had done an interview back then, and uh, you mentioned to another local group that was starting in Melbourne in the spring of 2012 that, you know, perhaps they would consider calling their group uh, uh, Melbourne Pig Safe. And they, they um, Paul Mahoney and... Karina sort of understood the significance of, you know, helping this, this idea of saves, and so they did that. And, uh, you know, they started with rallies, but now they're doing vigils as well. So then, um, so then anyways, in year two, a number of new groups formed, uh, but then uh, I'd say it sort of escalated very recently. So at the beginning of 2016, last year, there were 50 groups and many of them inactive. By the end of 2016, there were 100 groups, and all of them were active. And now, already a few months after that, 2000, you know, we're in um, April 2017, we have uh, 133 groups now, and they're active. So um, we're, we're, one of the reasons they're going so quickly is that we're consciously organizing to spread them as well. So in England, there's uh, over 30 groups now, and one of the reasons they grew so quickly is that they went to... uh, VegFest played a really important role in sort of uh, recruiting new organizers in different regions. Um, So here, we're we're trying that strategy in the United States as well. So um, some of our organizers in Ontario went to Portland for their VegFest, and as a result, a new group formed in Portland, and they did that in Phoenix as well, and there's a very active group in Phoenix. And we're also planning to go on a warped musical tour across the U.S. It's a, sort of an alternative sort of punk scene. Um, and there's, they, the festival involves 40 cities, so you know, we're, our, our team of organizers are going to go to about 20 of them and do vigils while they're uh, tabling at these uh, veg fests, uh, sorry, at this musical festival. So, um, yeah, things, our hope is to, by the end of the year to have hundreds of groups and, uh, you know, within five years to have thousands of groups. Uh, and also we're, we're, we're trying to spread the movement in regions that we haven't been before, so in particular Asia and South America. So a few weeks ago there's a new group called Hong Kong Pig Safe Formed, and they're very active. This was started by young artist uh, Samantha Fung, and they do regular vigils in front of a pig slaughterhouse. And at their first vigil, they already gave water to thirsty pigs. And it's quite remarkable. Like the animals look so similar, and the slaughterhouses look similar around the world. Um, in South America, there's four new groups within the last few weeks. Um, one in Lima, Peru; Bogota, Colombia; Sao Paulo, Brazil, and a new one in um, in Chile. And also in Europe, it's spreading two new locations. Um, just recently, last few months, there's a, a, two very active groups in Sweden, one in Switzerland and um, one in the Netherlands. Um, and so there are no groups currently in Germany or France or, you know, a number of states in uh, South America and or, a, you know, very little in Asia. So we're consciously sort of devising plans on how to spread the movement there. So the SAVE movement has grown remarkably in the last seven years.
0: That's really an explosion. Do you have a theory of why it has captured people's imagination and that it has been adopted so readily?
2: I think the idea of bearing witness to animals going to slaughter is something everyone can understand and it's something everyone can do. And it's very easy to start a new safe group. Um, There are slaughterhouses most likely in your community or near where you live and there's an opportunity to see animals face to face when they're in transport. It's very difficult to see animals at the factory farm or inside the slaughterhouse unless you're an undercover investigator. But the animals need to be transported from the factory farm to the slaughterhouse on public roads and there are so many opportunities to see them. And once you actually see their faces, it's and, and see them, you know, crying out for help, um, and seeing the horror and the, the pain in their eyes and, and basically it's um it, it's it's so profoundly impactful. There's nothing like it. It's, uh, and once people do it, and uh, they, they generally go to vigils again and again, they tell others, and um, as a result, the movement grows. At the same time, we use strategies and tactics that have worked. So we've, we discovered that all-day vigils are particularly effective in getting the numbers out and getting new people to come. So we, we hold regular all-day vigils, especially in the summer, and we have special guests like Bite Size Vegan or you know, uh, Sean Sh- Munson, who's director of Earthlings, um, or Amy Jean Davis, or, you know, or someone like that, and that helps bring new people. So often at all-day vigils, more than half the people are people that have never been to a vigil before. So over the course of a 12-hour all-day vigil or a 24-hour all-day vigil, we might have 300 or 400 people if we have like a celebrity, like bite-sized vegan, and more than half are new. So we know that that tactic, that approach works. Um, doing regular vigils is key, like weekly vigils is really good. Um, and then also using strategies like going to VegFest and... and uh, and having leaflets, I say, that point out how a new group can be started. We've also consciously recruited in some cases, like if there's an Instagram uh, account that's really active and amazing, we, we've approached the person and said, can you start a safe group? And, and that that's how we approached Mary, who is, uh, runs Jane Doe uh, on Instagram, and she started the first Irish Irish uh, pig safe. Um so yeah, so I think it's I think they're basically the idea of bearing witness is such a powerful idea, so that it's easy for the movement to grow, and the and secondly, we also consciously recruit and organize in order to build the movement even faster.
0: And then, of course, you can always have a court case that gets global media attention. Everything that started back in, I believe, quite a an uneventful vigil for you back in June last year, which then um, led to a court case and incredible uh, media coverage.
2: Right. It, it was actually June 2015. It's Something that has been going on for almost two years now. It's quite incredible. Um, so, yeah, it was a relatively... Une- like, for us, it was a regular vigil. It was a hot summer day um, in June 22nd, 2015. And I... Uh, we went on, it wasn't was a large vigil, it was only a few of us, and um, a couple of us went on the traffic meridian, Nikki and I, and I, I said, you know, look at the pigs, they're thirsty, and I gave them water, and I said, let's give them water, and Jeff, the truck driver, jumped out of the truck and said, don't give them water, and um, said that he'd call the police, and I didn't believe him, because I thought it was so obviously immoral what was happening, the pigs were panting, and so it, was, it was a very sad scene, and they actually came up to, to, to us to get the water even when he was arguing and being belligerent that I thought that, you know the pigs still came up to us to get the water and that they were so thirsty and um, it resulted in me being charged with criminal mischief, interference with the use enjoyment and operation of property And what was surprising is how, the, how social media, uh, immediately was very supportive of this case, and I, I was really surprised by it. There was, my lawyer came up with my vegan lawyer, James Silver, came up with the idea of compassion is not a crime, and that's sort of the hashtag that we use. And then there was a petition uh, set up by a person I've never met before, and they, they, it has like hundreds of thousands of signatures. And then there's a woman in Boston I never knew, her name is Karen, who set up a uh, compassion is not a crime Facebook site. So first of all, it went viral on social media. And then we had these pre-trials, before the trial even started, um, in 2015, and there was media that came to each of them, I was surprised by the extent of that, and it became a national media story, uh, and once it was covered by the Canadian press, uh, and then it became an international media story soon after, uh, at the pre-trial stage. And there were many pre-trials, like Four or five, and then the trial was in August, um, October, November of last year. And again, each trial, each trial date resulted in a media scrum. And so it, when I take a taxi somewhere, I often ask the taxi driver, Do you know about the case of the woman who gave water to thirsty pigs? And they go, Most, I'd say 90% know about the case. And I say, Oh, well, that was me. And they're very supportive. So the, the client, it's not just that it received a lot of media attention. It's received really positive media attention, and people really rallied behind the idea of the golden rule. That is, you know, when, when someone is suffering, um, you, you ought to treat them the way you'd like to be treated. So when, when someone's thirsty, you give them water. And, and it's a basic moral idea that has existed for thousands of years and is covered in all um, religions and philosophies and cultures.
0: And I believe that's the approach that your lawyers took, rather than a welfare-based defence. It was more about the rights of the animals.
2: I was really impressed by my two vegan lawyers, James Silver and Gary Grill. Uh, They could have took what was the most obvious approach, which is to use a welfare-risk defence and say, um, you know, and look at the welfare laws and say, you know, how unjust it is that, Pigs can travel in Canada 36 hours without water or food. But I, I said to my lawyers, that's a, you know, fighting it that way is smoke and mirrors. Because even if they're traveling one hour, if you change the transport laws to one hour, they're still dying of thirst. And, and, and it's not about welfare. That's not why we do vigils. That's not why we bear witness. We do it in order for people to be present and see the incredible injustice of these beings going to slaughter. So, right from day one, Toronto Pig Save and the Save Movement has said that its aims are to promote veganism and activism, and, and the idea that everyone has a duty to bear witness. And so, my lawyers said, well, that's how we're going to fight the case. And what's surprising is not only did they fight the case this way, but they also turned, uh, turned the case around and put animal agriculture on trial. So what they did is they had expert witnesses talk about um, the environmental devastation caused by animal agriculture, and in particular um, how climate change is being um, driven by this industry. Um, They had an expert on Dr. Lori Marino talk about the, uh, the personality of pigs, and basically she said pigs are persons and not property. Um, and that's based on the science. I mean, if you define a person as someone with cognitive abilities and able to tell the future and be, uh, think about the future and to be self-aware and so forth, she said that pigs are persons. And then what was most surprising is they even brought a health expert. You know, wait, I, I couldn't even have conceived of that when you know, I, I asked my lawyers to take on this case, that they would actually have a health expert talk about the health benefits of the vegan diet over a um, meat, dairy, and egg diet. And they brought in Dr. David Jenkins. He has five degrees from Oxford University. He invented the glycemic index, and he's uh, vegan. And he was so incredibly um, funny and thoughtful and uh, riveting. So when he took the stand, um, he not only talked about the fact that meat, dairy, and eggs cause our major causal factors in cancer and diabetes and heart disease he actually talked about the mechanisms the specific science behind how that is the case and the the judge was just like you know spellbound by him and and uh and it was so we had these incredible expert witnesses and my lawyers presented a number of ex- exhibits and all of their evidence was accepted as exhibits by the judge. So even they introduced a virtual reality headset to show what happens to pigs in the slaughterhouse, and we used Animal Equality's I Animal video, which shows pigs going to slaughter and a heartbreaking scene of pigs watching others going to slaughter and then trying to run away, trying to run back, but being forced to the kill floor and having their throats slit. Um, and So our lawyers also were able to show footage from the pig preserve to show the judge who pigs are. The pig preserve is in Tennessee, and it's about 100 acres with 120 pigs. And it's a preserve, not a sanctuary. So what that means is the pigs roam freely in the forest and feed themselves. They only get fed once a day by Richard Hoyle, who set up the preserve. The rest of the time they're eating... Um, squash berries and um, gra- different grasses, and and they form their own groups. And they're so lovely to look at. They've all had a history of abuse. Um, some of them jumped off a slaughterhouse truck, um, and and they're, they have these rich personalities. And in the video, it showed how one rosebud was so sensitive, and like once she had been. Uh, Trying to get more food, and Richard just sort of uh, b- bumped her on the back with a bucket, and she got so offended she went on, the, uh, ran away, and he had to go over to her and apologize with apples. And um, they all have incredible, uh, incredible language. They have over 150 different types of localizations, and um, they are—it's a matriarchal society and they, they formed their own groups of anywhere from two to a dozen, and, and they sometimes change the groups that they're in. And so the video went over all this, and it's, it's hard not to fall in love with pigs when you see this video. And what was interesting is that this video was shown um, right before we showed a video of an Australian video of um, pigs going to a gas chamber. And um, and it's, that video showed how they were brutally prodded, and how some of them tried, some of the pigs tried to resist and uh, tried to jump over the enclosure, and how they were brutally prodded in, in their face, and 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 how one pig went to another pig for, for for trying to console the pig, and but they both just went into the gas chamber and. And people were crying, and there, that video was like ten minutes long, and it was accepted as an exhibit, um, and it was incredibly moving. And you know, at, after this trial, I'm sure the judge and the packed courtroom learned a lot about who pigs are and how they're treated. And for us, this this is what the pig trial uh, was about. It was about. Trying, you know trying to explain like why we hold vigils in front of slaughterhouses you know what, what we want the whole world to know and basically we were able to do that in the courtroom. Um, so you know we showed footage of who pigs are, how they're treated in the slaughterhouse and also footage of us at vigils bearing witness and helping trying to help pigs with water and so forth so and, and on top of that having experts, speak about the environment, about, about health, and about pig sentience. And, and um, so basically, at this pig trial, we uh, were able to talk about all the, all, all the things that motivate us as animal rights advocates and um, all the reasons that people should go vegan and become activists.
0: When's the verdict due, Anita? So the verdict
2: um, is going to be uh, issued on May 4th and um, Judge David Harris said that he needed, he wanted to issue a considered verdict and one that would address the issues that were brought forth by the defence in particular and um, at At the last court appearance on March 9th, he pretty much said that I I wasn't guilty in the sense that he raised the issue of, um, you know, if there was uh, the defense, sorry, the the crown attorney had made the point about um, whether it was right or wrong to give water to a thirsty dog if the quote unquote owner said no. And um, the judge said he brought that issue up again, and he said there's absolutely nothing criminal about giving water to a thirsty dog, even if the owner, the so-called owner, does, doesn't want a stranger to give water to the thirsty dog. And he said the only only thing that would be criminal is if there's something in the water, or if it's like poison in the water. But but so he so basically said that we. Like, giving water to thirsty animals is perfectly legal, which, which we all know uh, is, you know, the, the morally correct answer because that's basically the golden rule. You know, when someone is thirsty, you give them water. So uh, that was good news. It was good to hear um, him say that. And uh, basically the verdict on May 4th will be more about addressing all these other issues that we brought forward, including the idea that pigs are persons and not property. And, uh, you know, my lawyers made it clear that ethically and scientifically that is the case. But whether it is legally, that's the question. And that's something that we'll be, you know, really listening um, and and hoping that, you know, Judge Harris is able to uh, make a judgment that would result in some legal precedence on the issue of uh, of
0: who, who pigs are. Unfortunately, Anita, we are running out of time, but it does um, give me a good excuse to invite you back on the program after the verdict, because I think it'd be great to spend a show talking about the court case and the outcome of the court case. But before we do go, I do want to talk about something that you've become passionate about since Toronto Pig Save, and that's um, Climate Vegan. Can you talk about how you started turning your attention to the climate issues?
2: One of our inspirations for starting a climate vegan campaign uh, is uh, Paul Mahoney of uh, Melbourne Pig Save. Uh, I, 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 at Toronto Pig Save, uh, we, we we started a climatevegan.org website uh, t- two years ago, uh, and it was a result of realising that the issue is much worse than we thought, and most people think. And um, it, all of us know that climate change is like this huge issue, and it's it's really threatening the very survival of life on the planet. But people don't have a sense of like how how soon that is, or how you know how important it is to focus on this issue. And and what what became clear is that there are so many tipping points that are being, you know, crossed. And, you know, whether it's the Antarctic ice or the Arctic ice, um, uh, whether it's uh, extreme weather events, um, you know, heat waves. So the issue is a lot worse than most people realize. And so we started a climate vegan campaign. And, you know, the good news is that going vegan will will result in a major contribution towards addressing this incredible crisis and if people move towards a plant-based diet that would free up a lot of land and enable us to reforest the land and that's the only way we can really address the climate crisis is by creating more climate creating more sinks to absorb the carbon dioxide in the atmosphere and the only way we can do that is if people go vegan and it's clear that it's not going vegan is not enough. That we have to address the fossil fuel issue, and and promote you know alternative energy. But we need to do both those things. We need to move towards a plant-based diet and address fossil fuels. And you know, uh, Paul Mahoney is probably one of the world's experts on the issue of climate veganism, and has certainly helped inform our campaign a lot so we do have an instagram we have a facebook page and we have a website and we're beginning to do more direct actions which is really exciting in toronto so we have like banner drops and uh we have a huge banner i think it's 50 feet long which says climate vegan which we bring to our vigils at slaughterhouses as well so we're beginning to do more direct actions around climate vegan and you'll see more of it
0: and if people do want to know more in-depth information about uh, livestock agriculture and its impact on climate change, um, Kate Gracie from Freedom of Species has interviewed Paul Marney many times on this issue, so you can just go to the Freedom of Species website and listen to those podcasts. I'm afraid we're out of time for now, Anita, but thank you so much for joining us on Freedom of Species and all the work you do. And hopefully we can catch up in, um, say, mid-May after your verdict of the, the pig trial.
2: Thank you so much, and thank you for helping us uh, get um, spread the safe movement right from the start. So <laughs> played in a, you played know, an important role yeah. at, uh, years ago, and I uh, appreciate being on your show again.
0: You've been listening to an interview with Anita Kreins from Toronto Pig Save. If it's piqued your interest, there's a lot of resources on the internet. A good place to start is at the Toronto Pig Save website that includes a guide on how to start your own SAVE group. Freedom of Species also has relevant podcasts on our own website, including Kate Gracie's interviews uh, with the founders of Melbourne Chicken Save, Melbourne Cow Save, Melbourne Pig Save and the newest edition, Melbourne Sheep Save. As mentioned in the interview, Kate Gracie has also interviewed Paul Marney a number of times about the impact of livestock agriculture on climate change. Paul Marney also has his own blog, Terra Terra meaning earth and Ostendo meaning reveal and to clarify. And that's exactly what he does, and he does it extremely well. In particular, he does some important work revealing the links between the livestock agriculture industry and environmental groups. The web address is terrestendo.net. We'll have all these links on our podcast page for the show on the Freedom of Species website. And remember, you can subscribe via iTunes and listen live via the 3CR website. All our podcasts are archived on the Freedom of Species website. So thanks for tuning in. Thanks to Anita. And we'll be catching up with her, the powerhouse of activism that she is, uh, next month. I'll leave you with another tune from Nick Cave, Abattoir Blues. And we'll see you back here again next week.
1: high up in the sky in my car Drifting down into the abattoir Do you see what I see, dear? The air grows heavy Listen to your breath Entwined together in this culture of death Do you see what I see, dear? Over here, give you a to avert evolutionary trajectory. Can you hear what I hear,
0: You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.